Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zelinsky. You all can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. How many people read it this week? Like 20 times. Not sure I buy that. Really, 20 times? Anybody read it more than 20 times? I guess we've got a winner. Nothing. Good job. So Matthew chapter 2, what is this passage about? The wise men coming to visit Jesus. And what did they bring him? And what does that make everybody think of? Christmas time. Isn't it weird talking about the wise men and it's not Christmas? It's not even Advent. If you don't know what Advent is, we, we need to talk later. But if we can get over this hurdle of connecting the wise men with Christmas and all that, we can really make some good progress here. Because the visit of the wise men to see Jesus has nothing to do with his birth, in a sense. I mean, his birth was involved because he had to be there first, but Matthew already dealt with his birth. And his birth was, Matthew was intent on showing us that Jesus was a rightful heir to the throne, that he was born to be king. And the wise men are not dealing with Jesus being born. They're showing us what a response is to Jesus being king. In fact, the way Matthew sets this up, it's showing a comparison or more, really more of a contrast between how the wise men respond to Jesus as king and how Herod responds to Jesus as king. And that's really what Matthew is getting after here. He wants us to be thinking about our response to the claim that Jesus is the king. Hence the title, Responding Wisely to Jesus as King. We need to be responding wisely to that. We need to be focused on that as we look through it because the wise men show us the kind of the how-to, if you will. Herod would be the how-not-to, but this is the how-to. And we're not gonna take those together. If you notice, we're just dealing with the wise men this morning, and then in the next passage, we'll deal with Herod and how he did this. Uh, how he responded very foolishly and in a way that we don't want to respond like Herod. Okay, we don't want to do that. So who are these wise men? What's the, what's the term behind wise men? Magi, right? And magi, uh, the, the magi were officials in, in a court, like of a king. They, they were sometimes counselors, advisors. They served in various capacities. They were not kings themselves, I don't know where we got this tradition about that there were three kings who brought him gifts. They weren't kings, and the Bible says nothing about there being three of them. We just hear gold, frankincense, and myrrh and assume that one of them each brought a gift, but that's not what the Bible says. We need to kind of throw that out to the side. It was probably a large group, a caravan, an entourage of court officials who were sent from a king to go pay homage and respect Uh, and gratitude to a new king that was born, and they're worshiping him in that. They're bringing him the respect that is due him as a king. When you're thinking of Magi, think about Daniel. 
you know, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel who was uh, in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, one of his advisors, one of the people who, you know, he, he interpreted dreams for him. They obviously dealt with astronomy. They understood the stars. They recognized a new star. And they understood that something about what they were seeing was significant, that a new king was born, and there was something special about this king. So they dealt with astronomy, they dealt with uh, advice and advising people. Even you could think of the magicians that Pharaoh had in his court that challenged Moses. They're also referred to as magi. It's where we get our word magic from, magicians. And we don't like, you know, maybe we're not really comfortable with that, but that's just the reality of what it was. Pharaoh's people did uh, certain things, certainly by demonic power. Um, But there were good ones like Daniel, who was also called a magi. So these guys, we don't know exactly uh, the details of who they were or even where they came from. It just says magi from the east. Mostly that was associated with Babylon and Persia, that area kind of further over. So um, likely they came from the Babylonian or Persian empire as officials of a king. They were coming to pay their respects to the new king who was born. So it makes sense. That's why they went to Herod. They went to Jerusalem, the capital. They're looking for the new born king. So as we get ready to read this, You're thinking about that's who the Magi were. They were court officials, probably with a larger caravan that came to uh, pay homage to this new king. They were not kings themselves. And uh, it's not about Christmas. It's about how we respond to Jesus as king in our own life. So if you would stand with me, please, as we read Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. Now, a couple of things, when we think about this star, we we just got to get this out of the way because everybody gets hung up on the star. Um, People have gone through great pains to reconstruct models of the solar system and how things would have gone. And there was this planetary alignment and all of these things, maybe, right? We don't know. Because how would a planetary alignment rise and guide them to a particular house in Bethlehem? Because that's what Matthew gives the impression 
this light directed them to a particular house. Now, if you've ever done navigation by the stars, it's not going to take you to a particular house. I think we're, we're wasting our time trying to find explanations for what this was. We just need to say it was a miraculous sign from God. And that's, that's the bottom line. God was showing them something very particularly. It was observable. It was visible. And it guided them to a particular house where Jesus was. And we just need to be at peace with that and not try to read too much more into that or, or figure any more of it out. But as we're coming along, Jesus was, uh, according to Matthew, uh, he presented Jesus as being descended from David, a rightful heir to the throne, adopted by Joseph, named by Joseph, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born as both God and man, son of God, son of David, born to rule and to reign. And now we see this response of these people who come to worship him. And something that's very, very interesting, if you stop for a moment and think about it, according to Matthew and the way he's picturing this, Gentiles from hundreds of miles away are the first ones to respond favorably to Jesus as king. Now, we know there were others. According to Luke's gospel, there were others at the temple when Jesus was born at his... uh, dedication to the Lord, his circumcision and things. Um, there, were, there were people there who rejoiced with him coming. But Matthew's not highlighting that. Matthew's highlighting this mission to reach all of the world for this king and for his kingdom. And so he brings these Gentile uh, people to come in to Jerusalem and to worship Jesus as king. So I want to encourage you just on a, a side note there, don't assume who will or won't respond well to the gospel. Okay, as you're trying to introduce people to Jesus throughout your life, don't look at somebody and just assume they're not going to respond to the gospel. Because if we were going to think, we would say, well, surely the scribes and the people studying and all this and that, they would be the ones that would embrace the Messiah. They've been waiting for him forever. But they don't. We're going to see they respond very, very poorly to Jesus as king. But yet here are these people who probably know very, very little about all things Jewish, but they knew enough to see that star and know that the king was born and they come and worship him. So don't make assumptions about it. But the biggest question we have to wrestle with, the biggest question I want you to wrestle with is how are you going to respond to Jesus and his claim to the throne of your life? Okay, how are you gonna respond to that? How are you responding to that? That's what we want to do with this. We want to evaluate our lives. Evaluate your life. Take some time. Actually reflect. Look inside. Ask Jesus to help you see how you are responding to him as king. Because you are responding. It might be responding well. It might be responding not well, but you are. And this morning, we're going to look at a couple ways that we can imitate from these magi who Matthew is presenting as the right way, a wise way of responding to Jesus as king. The first thing we see is that we need to give Jesus our worship, okay? Jesus is worthy of your worship. That's the first thing. That's the whole reason why they came. If you look in verse three again, they say, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. You need to give Jesus your worship. You can really only worship one person in your life. Only one person can be the king of your life, whether it's Jesus, maybe it's yourself, 
Maybe it's material things, which is really just satisfying yourself. Um, Who are you worshiping with your life? They humbly submitted to Jesus' authority as king. Whoever this king was that sent them, he recognized that this was a great king who was just born. Now, it's highly unlikely they viewed Jesus as divine. Okay, they, they probably didn't know about the virgin birth. They probably didn't know that this was God in the flesh. They just thought he was another human king. But nonetheless, they understood because of a star showing and declaring his birth that he was some kind of special king. And his kingdom was going to be different and his rule and reign was going to be very, very special and unique. But the way Matthew says that they worshiped him, Matthew is inviting us to worship Jesus as more than just a king. Because as Matthew was writing this, and as we see it from where we're at today, we understand that he's more than just any king, right? He's the king of all creation. This is his creation. He made it. He is God. And he is worthy of us to worship him in the fullest sense of the term. So do you. Do you worship Jesus as both God and king with your life? Only you can really answer that question, but it's something I would encourage you to not just answer too flippantly. Because we do that. Oftentimes we, we say real quickly, oh yeah, I worship Jesus. Sure I did. You know, weren't you here just you know, five minutes ago? We were all singing of how great God is. Isn't that worship? Well, you know, singing is a part of worship. Declaring God's praises is a part of it. But you know, singing is not the, the totality of worship. In fact, I would say it's, it's a small part of what it means to worship God. And yet in common Christian uh, vernacular and perception, we view that as the biggest part of worship. In fact, we refer to our singing as our worship time during the service, right? We, we do that. We, we call people who lead singing worship leaders. Well, we've got to break this mentality that singing is the main thrust of worship of God. Is it a part of it? Absolutely. It's a part of it from start to finish in scripture. We always see uh, God establishing people to sing his praises, people to lead the rest of God's people in singing his praises. You see that all throughout. It's a wonderful and a beautiful thing that we should do, but we can't think that uh, singing is it. Okay, we have to be understanding of, of what worship really is. And it's a whole life thing. It's everything. In John 17, as Jesus is praying, he says, Father, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work that you've given me. We worship God as we live life according to his purposes. You just living your life the way you were created to live it in loving, interactive relationship with God and in loving relationship with other people, you're glorifying God with your life. And when we're not living in loving relationship with God and with other people, we're not glorifying God with our life. And that's really where we need to be thinking about this. Have you truly, humbly submitted to his authority to rule over your life? You know, we get into this conversation about what does it mean to be saved and uh, to confess that Jesus is Lord. And we want Jesus certainly to be our savior. We want him to deal with our sins so that we don't have to go to hell. We get to be with him. But Jesus can't be your savior if he's not your Lord. It's a, it's a Lord and Savior combo that you can't, you can't separate the two. If he's not your Lord and you're not submitted to him, he's not your Savior and your sin hasn't been dealt with. You still need to be, uh, to be redeemed. 
There's no such thing as a believer who's not submitted to his lordship. If you're not submitted to his lordship, truly surrendered, your walk with him may not be what you think it is. There's only room for one person on the throne. And if you're still on the throne of your life, then it's not Jesus. But that's the first thing. That's the, the most basic thing is you've got to come to worship him. Acknowledge that he's king and live as though he's king. Because see, you live in light of the things that you really believe, okay? You really believe that chair could hold you when you sat down on it. You didn't think about it, but you just lived in light of that belief. If that was a, an old chair that maybe it was wooden or you, you could notice that it was missing a leg or something that would cause you to question it, you might not sit in that chair because you don't believe that something like that would hold you. You see what I'm saying? You act instinctively in light of the things you really do believe. Right now, you don't believe this building is on fire. If you did, you would run out of here or you would help somebody else get out. If you really believe that Jesus is king and worthy of worship, our life would reflect it. It would inherently reflect it. It would have to. So I want to question you on that, and I want to encourage you to think about it. How are you worshiping Jesus with your life? How are you worshiping Jesus with your words? How are you worshiping Jesus with your attitude? How are you worshiping Jesus with your actions? with your thoughts, with your relationships? Is the way you treat your neighbor glorifying to God? Is the way you interact with the cashier at Walmart glorifying to God? Is the way you treat your waiter or waitress when you go out to eat after church worshiping to God? It doesn't matter if their service is good or not. You still love them and tip big. Because in Christ, we have generous hearts. And we don't tip people or withhold tips because of anything. We're just generous and we give and we bless people. We should be the best tippers the world has ever seen. Don't leave them a track. Unless you leave them a really, really, really big tip. But seriously, Jesus has to be first in our lives. Has to be can only worship one person, one thing at a time, and it's got to be Jesus. Because Jesus is king, and he's worthy of your worship. Secondly, and this one may be a little, uh, little different, may have a challenge with this one, give Jesus your effort, okay? Jesus is worthy of your effort. He's worthy of your striving. He's worthy of your straining in this life for him. And some of you might think, well, wait a minute, we're, we're under grace, not works, right? This is grace. We're not saved by works. You're right. Nobody said anything about works. We said effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Okay, grace is opposed to merit. Grace is opposed to saying, I deserve this. Grace is not opposed to effort. Not at all. In fact, the people who receive God's grace the most typically exert the most effort in response and gratitude for what he's done for them. And this is something we see all throughout scripture. But look at these magi. It, it, you may not have noticed it, but they exerted a tremendous amount of effort to come and interact with Jesus. Think about it. 
We don't know exactly where they came from, but we know the general area. And it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 600 miles on a journey that took two to four months for them to get there. I mean, that in, a, in itself takes a lot of effort. They didn't hop in a plane and fly there. They're riding camels, they're walking. They, they had to plan for this thing. They had to prepare for this thing. Think about the effort they spent studying the skies. Have you ever looked up and noticed a new star? Would you even notice if there was a new star? Now, do you know how much you would have to study the skies to realize if there was a star you'd never seen before and be right about it? Think about how much time and effort they spent into studying the stars and studying prophecy because they knew and understood what the appearance of this star, whatever this uh, aerial phenomena they saw was, they knew this was the sign that the king had been born that they'd been waiting for. They studied, they learned, they knew, they understood those things. It took planning. Once that thing came, they said, hey, this is it. We need to make a trip. Let's plan. What's, what's our route gonna be? What resources do we need? What supplies do we need to take? Then they had to execute that plan. They had to carry it out. They had to give the desire. They had to follow through with the effort to make it there. Herod, if you notice, did Herod go with them? No, he just sent them on from Jerusalem to the Bethlehem. Do you know how far it was from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? About five, five six miles, right? They, Herod wouldn't go five miles to see Jesus. They went 500 that's a lot of effort. How much effort and intentionality do you put into your interaction with Jesus? Do you put the Magi kind of effort into your walk with Jesus? Or do you put the Herod kind of effort? Ah, go, let me know when you find him and maybe I'll come worship too. You will never be a disciple, nor ever make a disciple without effort, without great effort. Because neither of those things are a passive process. Sure, the initiative is absolutely God's and it can't happen without God and his grace at work in your life. But there's no such thing as a believer who has not been empowered by the Holy Spirit and has the grace of God available to them. The ball is always in our court on those things. Because we're never gonna say something like, well, I'm still dealing with this sin because Jesus just hasn't set me free yet. Like it's his fault. You know, I would be more mature in this area if God would have helped me. Said no one, at least meaningfully. Somebody might say it, but it's just not true. Everything we do with the Lord, it, it takes effort. It requires participation on our part. And that's something that is amazing that God has invited us to partner with him in this process of him shaping us more and more into his image. Read through anything in the scriptures that talks about our walk with God and we're told to do things, to think things, to respond to things that God does. Whether it's John the baptizer saying bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know what that means? He's, he's saying you can't just say I'm sorry and, and then try to go on from there. To bear fruit means to acknowledge what you've done, 
forsake it, and then do something different. For instance, the, the tax collectors, he said, stop extorting people. You have to actually change what you're doing and be different. That takes effort. That takes intentionality. You see Paul talk often about striving. He says, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead. He talks about striving with all of God's power at work within him. He tells Timothy to train himself for godliness. The writer to the Hebrews says to run the race with endurance. Those things all take effort. They all take effort. Hard work. You know, we think coming to Jesus is easy. We try to pitch it that way to people. That's why we have the understanding that we do. We say, well, come to Jesus. It's the easiest thing you ever do. You just come to him. He'll take you just as you are. And we present this idea of, really, it's, it's cheap grace. Because Jesus said, if, if you're people that wanted to follow him, he said, wait a minute, slow down. Think about what you're doing. Because you have to understand it's going to cost you your entire life to follow him. Now, when you weigh that in, in the options and you say, well, I could keep my life and it would be miserable and horrible and I'd still be a wreck internally, mentally, emotionally and everything, or I can do the hard work of submitting to Jesus, but I would have peace and joy and comfort in his presence and know his power at work in my life, it's a no-brainer which one you should choose. But to get there, it absolutely costs you your life. It takes effort. Just because he said, my way is easy, my, my burden is light, that doesn't mean that, that you don't have to do anything besides pray a prayer. That's what we think. I just pray about it. There's more to it than that. He invites us to join him with effort. You have to exert effort in studying. You know, if you want to know what the word of God says, you have to study it. You can't just read it and then set it down. Okay, how many of you have a truly photographic memory where you can read something one time and you will never forget a moment of it. Right, none of us. That means all of us need to read it more than once and we need to put more effort into studying it if we hope to remember it. You've all admitted that. So we've got you. You gotta study. You gotta meditate on it. You need to work on memorizing it. You need to work on the repetition of it. You need to talk through it. You need to understand it. Okay, these are all things that take effort and intentionality on our part to do. We have to exert effort in growing. You're never going to grow on accident, okay? Things grow when they're well taken care of, okay? You've got to take care of your soul. You've got to take care of yourself spiritually in the Lord. You've got to, you know, be feeding yourself, nourishing yourself, growing in the Lord, maturing, dealing with sin, getting those things that you're never going to get sin, a particular sin out of your life without intentionality. There are times God miraculously delivers people from addictions. That's awesome. And I thank God for that. But that's not the norm. That, that's an anomaly when Jesus does that. Most times we have to grow. We have to purposefully change what we do and how we do it and why we do it. You've got to exert effort in introducing other people to Jesus. You can have the greatest desire to be a witness in all of the world, but until you actually open your mouth and say something to somebody, nothing's ever going to happen. Jesus said, I will give you the words to say. He said, in certain circumstances, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, but they're still your words to say. You've got to open your mouth and do something. You know, we, we can't do this thing without exerting effort. And I want you to know, as Jesus has been portrayed, and in reality, he is king of all things, and he's worthy of your effort. He's worthy of so much more than just your words. 
And yet that's how we treat him far too much. We give Jesus our words, we give him our commitments, but we don't give him our effort. The Magi exerted great, great, great effort to go be with Jesus and to worship him. I encourage you to do the same. And then thirdly, they, they exerted this effort, they came, they worshiped him, and then they gave Jesus gifts, great gifts, amazing gifts, fitting for a king, very, very costly gifts. And sometimes, again, we try to read probably more than is there in the text about gold being for a king and myrrh preparing him for burial. And, uh, you know, maybe Matthew doesn't say anything about that. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make much of it. If, if it was that big of a deal, Matthew would have said so. But that's where I think we get hung up on the wrong things. The heart of this thing is, what are, what are you giving Jesus? Okay. They're they're being portrayed as the way to respond to Jesus as king. What gifts are you giving Jesus in your life? What do you have to offer him? Obviously, one of the easiest comparisons, you know, they're they're giving him gold. We think about money. Um, Sure, we should absolutely be tithing. We should be generous with our resources and things. But that's not really what this is about. That's not the point that Matthew's trying to make. Um, Because really, we should be viewing all of our material resources as his. I mean, nothing you own is actually yours. I mean, it really isn't. You might own a car. You might say, well, I I bought this house. If you're still paying a mortgage, the bank actually owns your house. You don't own your house. If you've paid your house off, you still have to pay property taxes every year. That house isn't free to you. You're still paying for it. Hate to break that to you. That's just where it's at. And the reality is when you die, it stays, not yours, okay? You get to take everything that is actually yours with you. Everything else, you're just borrowing God's stuff. He's given you a house to live in and you're a steward of it. You're a caretaker. He's given it to you to use and to take care of. And that's how we need to view all of our material possessions. We are are stewards. That's a biblical notion of stewardship. We are caretakers of God's resources that he's entrusted to us for this life, for his purposes, for his kingdom, because he's the king and what he says goes. So if you view it that way, really the material things, the giving of things, that's not really giving them to God because they're his anyway. It goes deeper than that. The reality is Jesus wants your greatest gift. And if we think about the things that we own as being the things we can take with us when we die, what can you take with you? Yourself. That's it. That's really the only thing that you own and and the only thing you really have to give. But that's really what Jesus wants, is yourself. The greatest gift you can give him is yourself. That's the main thing. Because if he has you, everything else follows. That makes it really simple, doesn't it? But when you think about everything that follows, it's, it's not just material things, but when you give yourself fully and completely to him in every way, everything in your life follows. And everything becomes his. Your thoughts are his. Your plans are his. Your will becomes his will. 
your purposes, your desires, everything. When you're fully surrendered to his lordship, his kingship in your life, his right to rule and reign over you, it's all his. And so we've got to give Jesus ourself fully. Every desire, every interest, every purpose, every plan should belong to him, be submitted to him, used for him and his purposes, his kingdom. Jesus is worthy of yourself and all that you have to offer with it. Whatever talents you have, whether they're physical talents, mental talents, maybe you're gifted emotionally, you can just relate to people, you connect with people, you're an encourager. Whatever your talents, your gifts, your abilities are, all of that stuff, give it to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want you to have me and everything that comes with me, use me for your glory, for your kingdom. And then don't be surprised when he does because he's gonna call on you to do things and you've gotta be willing to put forth the effort to do it and to live those things out. But the greatest gift you can give, really the only gift you can actually give that was yours is yourself. Everything else is just stuff that God's given you to, to use and to take care of. But Jesus is worthy of yourself. He's worthy of you and everything that you have that goes with you. So to wrap this up, remember, this is about how we respond to Jesus and his rightful claim to the throne of our life because he's the king of all of creation. So we're gonna end right where we started. How are you responding to Jesus as your king? And that's something you've gotta wrestle with. And I would encourage you on these, these three fronts. First of all, give him your worship. He's worthy of it. He's the king. He's the rightful heir to the throne. Give him your worship and not just your singing, but all of your worship. Secondly, give him your effort. Add the greatest amount of intentionality and purposefulness to your walk with Jesus and do something. Okay, it, it's not just coming here on Sunday mornings. This is just a very small part of it. It's an important piece. It's a significant piece, but it's a minimal piece. Right, this can't be the, the biggest piece of our walk with Jesus. It can't be. Give him your effort in all of life and give him your gifts, most significantly yourself. And trust yourself to his care. And that, that's risky. That's kind of a dicey thing, you know, when you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm putting myself completely in your charge, but that's what the call is to follow him, to entrust yourself to him fully. You never know where he's gonna lead you, but you can know that it'll be good because he's the king, he's a good king, and he's worthy of everything, our worship, our effort, and our gifts, especially ourself. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you. <laughs>